When I was uh, when I was in grade seven, I started playing football, and I had this poster in my room. I still remember it. He had a white helmet, and he had this burgundy jersey, and he was in the full-blown Huck and Buck, which for those of you who don't watch football, like the pose of the Heisman Trophy, he was just, and I still remember it. And, it. and it said at the bottom, it said, dot, 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 press toward the goal, dot, 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 Philippians 3, 12 to 16. Uh, that was the script for reference, and uh, it's interesting. Um, great poster. But anyhow, the thing with um, dot, 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 theology is you can kind of make the bible say whatever you want you know dot 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 here's a couple words dot 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 um so this morning we're going to actually look at the text from that football poster philippians 3 uh 12 to 21 and uh we've been working through paul's letter to the philippians chapter by chapter kind of walking through it and being encouraged by what the apostle paul had in view and the reason uh, we're going to not stop at the dot, dot, dot is we've got to look pretty thoughtfully into the dot, dot, dot. Because as it turns out, when Paul was writing this letter in a damp Roman prison in 61 AD under the rule of Nero, he didn't have scoring touchdowns in view. Uh, mind blown. Uh, so we want to look deeply into what it is that he's, what he's after here. In fact, the idea of pressing on toward a goal, as we're about to see, um, it doesn't even have achievement really in view. Which I think is the way I kind of grew up kind of thinking about it. We kind of look at this context. We're going to discover this. For most of my life, I kind of thought what it meant to press on was to basically just try harder at whatever you happen to be up to because God was with you. Um, which isn't totally unhelpful thought. But it's much richer than that. And it's much deeper. And it's infinitely more encouraging than I, than I understood growing up as a young guy. So let's take a look at this text, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12 and reading to 21. Not that I have already attained or already perfected, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me in imitation and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And for many of whom I have often told you and will now tell you, uh, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ Their end is in destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is God's word. Now, this letter has a strong theme about having joy and suffering. That's really the theme of the letter. Continually, continually throughout Philippians, if you read it front to back, joy, joy, rejoicing, rejoicing. It keeps coming up, and Paul's in prison. So you, if there's a guy who doesn't have any reason to have any sort of joy, he's in a circumstance that would suck it, suck the joy out of you like a low-hanging gray sky. I mean, Paul has that opportunity, but he keeps writing about it. And so this call right here that we're about to expound on about pressing on and persevering, it's sandwiched between um, two conversations around citizenship. 
So that gives us a clue. How many of you don't like it when people take things you say out of context? You know, you say they come, they walk in halfway through a conversation, and they're like, "Hey, I think this." You know, that's Twitter, right? That's a, that's how Twitter works. Um, you just come in midstream of somebody's thought, and you're like, "Hey!" And so, for us to understand what it means to persevere and to press on, we understand how is this thing sandwiched, and where is it from? And it's in this conversation around citizenship. And uh, so Paul starts out, he says, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on to make it my own. What's the it? Make it my own. He says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then later in the passage, he starts talking about citizenship again. And you remember from last week, or perhaps you weren't here last week, and Paul makes this phrase, he says, walk worthy of the calling of which you've been called. What is, how can you say that if God's love and grace is, is a gracious gift? How do you walk worthy of a gift? It's a gift. But what it means in the Greek, when you unpack to walk worthy in the Greek, is it, it means uh, that you are walking in a congruency with your citizenship. So to walk worthy as a Canadian would mean you're going to get in your car and drive home on the right side of the road. That's, walking, that, that's driving worthily. So in the Greek, when Paul's saying walk worthy of your calling, he's not like, hey, get out there and earn God's love and acceptance. He's saying you've already been given God's love and acceptance love and acceptance you're his child and now walk in congruency with what it would look like to be god's child saved by his great grace and so um then he goes on and he says you know i'm not i'm i'm gonna press on here i'm gonna persevere now there's this book by author malcolm gladwell called the outliers some of you may have written it uh, or sorry have uh, read it some of you may have written it and malcolm ripped you off which is a really sad thing when malcolm does that um sorry what am i saying he wrote this great book called The Outliers, and uh, he talks about how one of the great principles in the book is if you're going to be proficient in something, you've got to give it 10,000 hours. And then he starts going through various artists and athletes and business people who invested 10,000 hours in something. So it's, it's, a, it's good. It's, it's a fantastic book in regards to leadership. This text where Paul's saying persevere is not just ancient uh, Gladwell philosophy. Because, because when Gladwell was observing, is Gladwell is looking at, looking at people who are highly proficient in their respective fields and saying, they invested sweat equity. They persevered with sweat equity. What Paul is saying is he's not calling the church to persevere in sweat equity. The context is citizenship, and he's actually calling them to persevere more deeply and richly into a, an, an identity. That they would actually grasp it with their heart and their mind. That it would actually influence and affect their day-to-day. It's very deep what Paul is doing here. And so, um, and so this is what he's looking at. Um, the principle of 10,000 hours is, uh, is, is fueled by sweat equity. The principle of pressing on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus is fueled by a new sense of identity. To borrow from author Tim Keller, he'd say it this way. The identity of our age is achieved. You work hard in school, you get your degree, you graduate, you, you, uh, you, know, you go on and you achieve an identity as such and such. Or you choose not to go the path of school and you go a, a different path of sweat equity, of working hard, of developing skills or trades or whatever it is. You go, there's many different paths, but they're all paths of achievement. You, your identity is achieved. In the, in the gospel, identity is received. And when you have an identity that's received... The way you engage in everything day-to-day is completely different because earning is now off the table. There's a sense of pervasive peace in your heart about who you actually are as a person. And so Paul is calling the church into this radical peace. The reason we gather every seven days is because we all need our hearts recalibrated because we're all humans who have our hearts 
constantly being curved to the conversation of our culture, which, if there is no God and you are therefore are your own God, then you have to curate your own sense of identity in a, through achievement. That's life as a human. So Paul is calling the church out of that in this glorious place of rest. And then he says, press on and persevere kind of from this place. So then we come to the verse 14 where he specifically says, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is this prize? Well, it's affecting his vocation, but the upward call isn't just simply vocation. What happens after you retire then? You have an identity crisis if your call was the vocation, because now the vocation is gone. What happens if I get sick and I can't work? I met a gentleman in Florida who was a surgeon, and he came down with a disease. He was, he was on death row. I've never met a man with so much peace in his heart, because he, the doctor gave him a death sentence. And, and I was talking with him, and he's just, I'm just so thankful for the hope that I have in God, that this life isn't all there is. He can't work anymore. His hands don't work. He's a surgeon. You see, the, if the upward call of God in Christ can't just simply be our vocation. The upward call of God in Christ actually in, it, it infuses the way we approach our vocation. But your vocation can shift and change or be gone. But the, the upward call of God in Christ is this deep sense of identity that's now playing out in everything that we're doing. Bringing rest to our minds, rest to our hearts, and flowing out through our hands. And that can happen a million ways, and it can keep shifting as the seasons of your life shift. So we press on. We persevere in something deep and rich, powerful, truly recalibrating. That's Paul. Well, Paul has a basis for saying this. is a basis for saying everything. For those of you that have been here for a number of weeks, you already know what this is, because I've said it five times, and I'm about to say it six. But for those of you who are just coming in this morning, I'm going to say it, because we can't understand the letter of Philippians without saying what I'm about to say. Because Paul wrote a Christ poem, and it's in chapter 2. Theologians call it the Christ poem. And the rest of the letter, all, it's like small little vignettes that are all rotating around and being sucked into the center of gravity, which is this poem. It's like verses 6 to 12, I think. And this is what it is. He says, Jesus Christ did not count his equality, his, 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 his divinity with uh, deity with God as something that he needed to grasp and hang on to, but rather Jesus let it go. And he comes and he incarnates himself and he humbles himself and he takes the form of a man, not just a man, a servant. And he dies for you and I and he forgives all of our sin, though we didn't deserve it. And then God raises him and then he ascends to the throne and then he is given the name that is above every name. And one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because P.S. we're all made of dirt. Right? The average lifespan globally is 71. The average lifespan in Canada is something like 69 or something like that. I'm not being morbid. I'm just being rational, right? If there, so if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're exploring Christian faith, you're considering different things, I am not, I'm not trying to be facetious and I'm not, I'm not trying to be like, you know, yeah. I'm just saying, rationally speaking, you'd have to not think very deeply about your mortality um, without getting depressed, which is why when you read philosophers like Jean-Paul Sartre and, or... or you know, a particular uh, atheists who are not necessarily um, uh, thoughtful, but like really angry, like angry that God doesn't exist. And I know that that doesn't describe you if you say, well, you know, I'm wrestling with Christian faith and I'm not sure that there is a God. You're not angry that God doesn't exist. You're just wondering about it. But I'm talking about when you find guys that are like angry that God doesn't exist, um, you can't think very deeply about your mortality. Paul puts the, divin the divinity of uh, Christ and he puts the deity of Christ at the center and he says, listen, if that's true, that should affect everything. That should give us a sense of pervasive hope in our hearts and our lives into the day to day. We've got to press into that. We've got to press on very deeply in that sense of identity so that hell or high water 
There can be a preventive sense of peace in our hearts so that we live out or facing lives of true liberation. So that's, that's his basis for it. That's his basis for saying everything that he says in this, in this letter. And so this call to press on is not about producing lives of greater activity. It's about lives that are joy-filled because we've got a grasp of a gospel-shaped identity. And so we're heirs, and it's affecting um, our day-to-day in a, in, a, in a very deep and a very rich way. And so <clears throat> when you look at verse 17, as you kind of go through this, he says, join in imitating me and keep your eye on those who are walking according to the example that you have in us. So what is this imitation? Because there's a lot of calls to imitation in the New Testament. And uh, it's going to play out like a um, particular set of behaviors. It's going to play out like particular Christian ethics. I'm, obviously, it's going to play out that way. But fundamentally, though, it's, he's not just like, hey, guys, see what I'm doing, do what I'm doing. Because guess where he is? Prison. Okay, what's he doing? Nothing. He's writing. So this, isn't, this has got to be more deeply, more profound than simple activity. Although I'm not diminishing the fact that it'll play out in activity. Okay? So Paul is saying uh, uh, there's an alignment that has to happen. There's a deep and rich alignment that has to happen. And when you look at the life of Jesus, um, Jesus gave his life away. Uh, because he knew that he already had the Father's love and acceptance and that his life was in the Father's, his Father's hands. Jesus does this. Then you look at the apostles, and the apostles are generous. They give their lives away because they know they follow the same pattern. They go, well, if my life is in God's hands and this life isn't actually all that there is, I'm actually very liberated to give my life away, even at the cost of myself. And then the call to the church was this imitation. But it's not just simply love and good works for the sake of love and good works, because you could do that with gritting your teeth the whole time. You know, I could just get up here and be like, hey, church, you see Paul, I said, keep his example. So everybody get out there next week and love your neighbor a little bit more. Come on, whatever you're doing, you could do more of it. Yeah, of course, the answer to that question is always yes, but, but fundamentally in the heart, we could just, mm. and there's really no joy or no liberation there. But I'm telling you, Paul is writing this with a smile on his face. I promise you that he did because of something richer that's been um, rele- uh, released in his heart. If you've ever had a car out of alignment, so if you're a student, you bought a used car and it's old, all of them are out of alignment. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, a car that's out of alignment, it kind of wobbles. And at certain speeds, the wobble is terrible, right? Like you, you hit that certain revolution of the tire, and it's like, whoa, you can just feel it. But then you can speed up, and it's like it goes away. And I'm doing air quotes for those of you who are listening online, okay? It goes away, uh, but it doesn't actually go away. The increase of activity doesn't change the fundamental problem. The increase of activity is masking a fundamental problem, and it's actually making it worse. So when Paul says, press on, church, he's needing them to address the fundamental identity problem so that they don't just run off into greater and greater religious activity and make the problem worse. Our hope and our trust has to be in Christ. Our hope and our trust has to be that God actually has us so that all of the loving activity that flows out of our hands, whether it's across the, the chairs of one another, caring for each other in this community as you, you're made aware of needs and you're like, ah, oh, I'm willing to, I'm going I'm to give of myself in this way to care for the church community or it's in this city or at work on your campus, whatever that happens to look like. Paul is not just saying, hey, let's increase the activity and maybe the wobble will go away. He's saying we got to press on towards something that Christ Jesus already laid hold of. It's already finished in him. But my heart doesn't know that yet. i got to grasp that so that I can live a life of true liberation and peace and hope. This is uh, the call to press on. 
Because that's why you notice that after that verse, he goes on, he says he, he's really sorrowful. He's crying over these people who their hope isn't in Christ, and he, and he says their God is their belly. It's an interesting phrase, their God is their belly. That should remind us of something, the fundamental human problem since the beginning, right? Ah, oh, this looks good for food. I'll have the fruit. Hey, how about you, Adam? Yeah, I'll have it too. The God is the belly. Well, what's that about? There's nothing immoral about eating a piece of fruit. There's, there's no ethical dilemma about the fruit. The problem with the fruit was that it was, that it was uh, treason. So God says, enjoy absolutely everything. And the way to enjoy everything as a human is to remember, I'm the creator, you're the creation, enjoy the creation, so don't touch this tree. And by not touching it, you are acknowledging that you're not God. That's as simple as that. So, but in the garden, the God was their belly. The lie of the devil was, no, 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 you don't need God. You can be your own God. God will not fulfill you. You have to fulfill you. You will not find a sense of, of, of identity and completion in him. You have to go find identity and completion in yourself. So go and get it. Oh, P.S., there's the fruit. Eat the fruit. Be God. In the Hebrew, be God, not be like God. You look at the Hebrew, there's no likes in Hebrew. It's just be God. And that's the human condition. We want to be God. And so Paul here, he's tearful. He says, we've got to press on and grab something so we can rest. Because uh, these folks over here, and I'm tearful about it, the God is their belly. They have no rest. And what is the predicament of the church? We're not any better than our neighbors, right? We're just forgiven. And what happens when we leave out of rest? Our God becomes our belly too. Right? It's not like, oh, those crazy people who aren't in church. Their God is their belly. Every single one of us at some point in this week is going to make our belly our God. We're going to have a disordered love, a disordered craving, and we're going to put our trust in that thing. And as long as we're putting that tr our trust in that thing, we can't press on and persevere into the rich sense of identity and joy, peace, and hope in God. We can't do it. And so then he goes on in verse 20, after this call to press on, and in verse 20, if you look at it, he says, you know, but our citizenship is in heaven. It's really interesting. Guys, press on, persevere. That's kind of like, you know, earthly, down here, day to day. How do I press on and persevere through the trials of my life? And then all of a sudden, Paul's like, yeah, and you've got the citizenship in heaven. What is up with that? Is he just, uh, is this one of those situations where it's like, let's just be so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good? Is this like just Christianese, where we're, we're just supposed to be like, well, you know, life is terrible and horrible and crazy and stressful, and I'm battling all of these things, but, you know, heaven's coming one day. That's not this at all. That's not the gospel. That's not... The Christian message is not just grit your teeth until Christ returns. He's, saying, he's calling their attention to their heavenly citizenship for the precise purpose of giving them strength for now. Right? Like, the, like the old hymn says, strength for today and hope for tomorrow. I mean, that's what's up here. This is what he's trying to do in a very rich way. And he goes on to it and notice how, what he says. He doesn't just talk about citizenship. He gets pretty particular. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform your lowly body. To be like his glorious body. So he's now causing us to imagine that we're not floating around in the stratosphere like we thought when we were little children, you know, wearing diapers, shooting arrows, you know, or like I learned at the Easter, you know, presentations as a kid, everybody wear bathrobes in heaven and we just kind of wander around doing nothing. Paul gives a very picture of, a very vivid picture of the new earth, which is that God will restore all things and then he will raise us to enjoy all things with him. We, just as Christ was raised, we will be raised. Do you like being a human? Good, because... Um, God is going to raise you and give you a glorious body that doesn't get sick and break down and die. And do you enjoy sunsets and nature and the glorious wonder of the ocean and staring into the stars and just a sense of wonder at the universe? Good, because grace isn't doing away with all that. God's grace is restoring all of it. When you look at the New Testament and Jesus is doing miracles, he's not suspending the natural order. 
when Jesus is on the scene, that is the natural way of things being actually supposed to be. So all the miracles of Christ, they call them signs because it's a sign. Like a, like a one-way sign is pointing in a direction. And the signs of Christ are pointing to what is to come. The restoration of all things. What God wanted in the beginning. And so Paul draws our attention to that. And that, as our hearts grip it more and more and more deeply, deeply and richly, that changes the, the trial you're dealing with on Monday. That will recalibrate how you, when you look in the mirror and your body is sick and you're frustrated... That will do something to your heart and to your mind. When you wake up in the morning and you're getting dressed and you're wondering what is going to happen, how, um, what, is, what is going to happen with my future if you're a student? Right? And there's all these terrifying narratives about the economy and this and that and the other thing and how it's all going to not work out or not work out. And I mean, this, what Paul is getting at here is, is going to recalibrate, reset your heart and mind to a place of peace. And now you can persevere and, 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 uh, through your trials because you've relocated your identity. And all of us go to sleep and wake up like, you know, uh, we wake up on the default settings. You know, we need God's grace and mercy every day. The text says uh, earlier, uh, much earlier in the Psalms, there's an encouragement, his mercy is new every morning. Because we need it that often. Because we wake up and our hearts are like, on, we wake up, it's like on default mode. It's like waking up and your phone was reset every morning. What, I got to do this again? Yeah, we do. You know, that's why church, there's no bonus points in heaven for gathering every Sunday. God's not like, oh good, you're a better Christian because you're here. This is oxygen. We need our soul recalibrated. Or else our God will be our belly. You'll go, we're all worshipers, every human being is, we worship something. And we'll live to the glory of that thing. All of us will do it. And so Paul draws their attention to this heavenly citizenship. It's incredible. And uh, so let's put this all on the ground. I thought about you folks as I was praying for you this week. And I thought about this, how do I... How do I serve you in a way where you maybe leave and put this on the ground in a real practical way? So I thought, I'm going to put this text of pressing on and perseverance um, in light of this past election. And in fact, every election. And I'm going to do this in a very nonpartisan way so you can relax. Because it would be very inappropriate for me to turn this pulpit into a podium and talk to you about team, political team Jesus. Because P.S. there isn't one. So that would be inappropriate. But what is totally appropriate and totally within my jurisdiction is to take the word of God and see how it comes to bear in how we live day-to-day lives. So let's consider pressing on in perseverance and identity and citizenship in light of this last election here. Um, every election season, the tone is often incredibly polarizing. Salvation is on its way or the apocalypse is on its way. If you vote for this candidate or this particular party, they're definitely going to save you economically or whatever. And these, these folks, they're bringing the apocalypse. That's the tone. And um, the problem with this, of course, is many, but it's a very frustrating and, a, and fragile way to live. It's a very frustrating and fragile way to look out on, on the world. And as the church, we're called to be ministers of God's grace in the city. Not only ministers of his grace in the sense that we actually speak the actual gospel, which is that the sacrifice of Christ means the forgiveness of our sin, to share the good news of that message, but also to live out the implications of that message, which means if I have a heavenly citizenship that transcends my Canadian citizenship, I can be very loving and giving and generous in the city. I can use my gifts in whatever uh, form that God has given them to me. I can bring them to the community so that the community will flourish. 
I'm free to do that. I don't have to be curved inward. I can be very curved outward because I've got my eye on eternity and I'm not driven by the day-to-day. So that's what we're actually called to do. Uh, But what are the odds that we are going to live with that sense of outward-facing generosity if we embrace the cultural narrative that salvation or the apocalypse is always in the balance based on who's in government? If we buy into the cultural narratives that usually arise around uh, political seasons, uh, we're going to be curved into how is everything affecting me in my particular situation? How do these... How does this platform affect me and my family? And it's responsible for us to think that way, but it, uh, would, be, um, it would be exhausting to think about that way ultimately. And so, as the Apostle Paul is calling us to this, this uh, citizenship of the eternal, it helps us recalibrate how we navigate our day-to-day citizenship as Ontarians and as, uh, and as, and as Canadians. Because we want, what we want to do is see our lives in the hands of an eternal God, not in the hands of a temporal government. The fate of your peace and your hope is in the hands of an eternal God who is unchanging, not a temporal political platform that I promise you is changing. Right? And it doesn't matter where you land. Right? None of you will ever know how I vote or who I vote for. There's never going to be an article that I write that says, hey, church, we should all be voting for Team Jesus. Right? I don't think that's responsible. But... What Paul is doing here in this text is he's recalibrating us so that we're not so uh, disturbed. Now, the government in this province has shifted back and forth, predictably, since 1812. Back and forth. There's only two exceptions. Two exceptions in 203 years of political history. We're in 18, I think it's 1826. What am I going to say? 1878, sorry. 1878 and 1990. Those are the two exceptions. The Ontario farmers get in in 1876 the NDP in 1990, but for the, the remainder of those 203 years, it's just shifted back and forth ideolo- ideologically. So my point here is that if all of our really ultimate, our hope and our trust uh, is not in the eternal but in the temporal, do you see that it's always shifting and there's always a threat to your peace? Because either um, you're under the impression that salvation has come, but the fact that it's come, historically and politically speaking, it's already leaving. Or it hasn't come, and so you, in both scenarios, our, peace is, our sense of peace and hope is threatened. Do you see this? So <clears throat> the Apostle Paul calls us to this heavenly citizenship, which I think has day-to-day implications of our Canadian and Ontarian citizenship. Because Paul is calling us as the church to really find rest and hope in eternal benefits. So that we can now look at uh, political benefits with a different lens. In the sense that all, all of our chips aren't there. Regardless of how that plays out. So, in this sense, so that in that sense we can continue to live very outward facing lives as, as uh, ministers of the gospel in the city. And this is the good news. Because the one who spun the universe in motion, church. The grand mover that caused everything from absolutely nothing. Came to you. In Jesus Christ, and he incarnated himself in 33 AD, and he gave his life for you on a Roman cross, so that all of your sin in him is forgiven. And three days later, the tomb was empty, which gives us a sense, uh, which gives us a sense and a promise of uh, of our e- eternal benefit. And there is any, there is a there is a rest for our hearts in that, so we can press on and persevere through the trials that you and your particular families. 
are facing. We press on from the rest and the renewal of his grace. We persevere through all of our trials through the power of his grace. We press on and we persevere through whatever it is that we're facing, church, from the rest and the rejuvenation that comes from remembering that your very life is not at the mercy of ever-shifting circumstances. I just used politics as an example because it's, it's very fresh, but on every circumstance, our life is not hanging in the balance with the shifting circumstances. Our very life is resting on the unshifting preeminent shoulders of Jesus Christ. And so we can forget the things that are behind. We can reach forward to the things that are ahead. We can press toward the goal for the prize of our upward call of God in Christ Jesus, church. Let's pray.